in verses 14 through 17, and the title of the sermon is, You Need a King. You Need uh, a King. And this is God's prescription in His law that He gave to Moses, and He gave it specifically to Moses, and this is what the king of Israel was supposed to look like, never look like, but was supposed to look like. Okay, And so it would be fascinating for us, I hope, at least it was for me, and hopefully it will inspire you to love and serve God, and specifically Jesus Christ, all the more uh, as you serve Him. But it's interesting for us as Americans to think about a king. Uh, so I, I was a history major, and one of the things that I, I studied a decent amount was the French Revolution. And so maybe some of you all have heard about Bastille Day, right? Bastille Day is July 14th every year. It's the French national holiday. And it's named that way because in 1798, the fortress, the armory, it was a fortress, it was an armory, it was a prison, even from the 1400s, uh, was stormed by the citizens, and they, they took out all the weapons in there, they freed the prisoners, and they killed all of the guards, okay? And so here's a little bit of background that, that happened that led up to that moment and why it's still celebrated today with fire. It's there July 4th, for example. Interesting that it's in July, okay? It's actually, it was on the heels of the American Revolution, right? So the American Revolution happened, which they were throwing off a bad king. And then, so what happened was King Louis uh, was, tons of people were growing in, in a lot of dissatisfaction for King Louis at the time for really good reason. Poverty, starvation, and massive taxation to fund his wars, okay, to extend his territory. Some of it actually was to help with the American Revolution. So people were extremely angry. They were angry because they were literally dying of starvation and nothing was happening about it. And what the response was not aid. The response was not more money or more food. The response by King Louis was to put more troops in Paris, which frustrated them even more. So instead of responding to the legitimate need that's happening in the society right now, you're going to put your, your foot down even more. And so that's what happened. That's why they went to get arms. That's why they went to get the gunpowder that, that, that was in the Bastille that day. And that right there, that was the spark that flamed uh, the French Revolution, which in many ways was terrible. Uh, and we could talk about that for a long time. But it's interesting, the goal of that storming of Bastille was to be free from a bad king. And then if you look at the American Revolution, you could probably say the same thing. It was to escape unjust taxation or, to simplify it, to be free from a bad king. Sewn into the American DNA, I feel like, is nervousness about a king in charge. It's kind of one of the reasons why our government exists. And so we would really struggle thinking about kings for good reason. Our personal history as a nation, but also just history in general. When you look throughout history, you'll see that kings don't have a really good track record. Every now and then you might run up against one that was a good king and that served his people well, but very often you're going to find corrupt kings who try to give themselves more power, who try to get themselves more money, who try to do all of these things, who abuse their people for their own cause. And you some of them actually thought they were God, like Pharaoh. And even some of the... Sorry, I'm having trouble keeping my mic on my ear here. And even some of them uh, believed that they were divine in the sense that God chose their family uh, to be king. What's interesting, though, is even with that as a backdrop, what if I told you that you really needed a king? 
Would you believe me? Also sewn into our DNA is the fact that all of us sinfully want to reject God's authority over our life. But here's the reality. You may want to be the king of your own life. and You may live focused to that end, but there's a few problems with that. Number one, no one else is going to recognize your reign. You may be able to convince a handful of people, but that'll be it. Number two, God for sure will not recognize your reign as king. Number three, and this is something that I think is uh, pretty profound, there's a lot of pressure with being king. There's a lot of pressure with you being solely in control of your life. You better get it right because you're in charge. Really, you need a king. And our hearts in general don't do well with power. The more power we get, the more we tend to destroy the things we love. Even when we don't have real power, we're just under the illusion of power. We tend to destroy the things we love. For those reasons and many more, I would like to tell you that you need a king. You just need a good king. And what we'll see in this passage is that God's prescription for a king was always that, a good king. And that Jesus was ultimately the fulfillment of that, the king that we needed. So let's read it together. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and have settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers and do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, for, for his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and the decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, as we consider your word this morning, simply ask God that you keep my mouth from error and that you would help me to speak your word. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, God, as we worship you over your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. big idea is pretty simple this morning. You have a king, his name is Jesus, and you need this king. Now, whether you recognize it or not, king, Jesus is the Lord of all the glory. He is the king of all the earth. Now, you may reject that, but he still is. He still is your king. Just like a king over a vast nation would still be the king over this subject, even if this subject or his family refused to acknowledge it. He would still be the king. 
what I want to convince you of, hopefully this morning, is you desperately need this king. Okay? Three points this morning. God's authority leads to a king. God's authority leads to a king. Jesus is the king of kings. And then how to live under King Jesus. Okay? God's authority leads to a king. Jesus is the king of kings. And then how to live under King Jesus. First, God's authority leads to a king. So God has authority over this people that he created all the way back from Abraham. He has authority over everyone on the earth, but he delegates specifically, the plan was to delegate part of his authority to a king. Okay? So we see in verse 14 when we pick up this, in this passage, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving it you and taking possession of it and settle in it, you and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. God has been building His people from nothing, just like He created the world from nothing. And when the people of God, listen to this, when the people of God submit to the authority of God, prosperity is always the result. We don't typically think of submission leading to prosperity, but in the Bible that happens 100% of the time. And so the promise was that after He delivered them from Egypt, that he was going to give them a land, and it was going to be a land, the, the, the verbiage that surrounded it was dripping with milk and honey, right? It was a, their picture of what prosperity looked like, their little saying of what prosperity looked like. And God was going to lead them into that land, and they were going to live in houses they didn't build. They were going to eat the fruit of vineyards and fields that they did not plant, and God was going to give it. If they would just submit to the authority of God, He would bring them prosperity. God's authority always brings prosperity. Good leadership always brings prosperity. And bad leadership always brings poor prosperity. If you look at the nations of the world that are prosperous, that the people love being citizens of those nations, that there is not widespread hunger or, or, or corruption, you will find good governments, or at least better than most. God is the same way. Under His authority, there is always prosperity. But what God says here in this passage is His authority leads to a king. You saw that. What's going to happen? You're going to get in the land, and then you're going to say, all right, let us set a king over us like all the nations um, around us. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, we think that God never wanted a king over Israel. And we think that for good reason. Here's why. Because a lot of the leaders and almost all of the kings were terrible. Okay? God led Abraham, and then he led the Israelites, and then he gave them his law right at the Mount of Sinai through Moses, and then he gave them judges and elders. And when they finally do get a king, it doesn't go well at all. Saul is the first king. And we don't get and it doesn't turn out well. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read this. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, if you're familiar with that verse at all, then you might be a little confused. I'm saying that there needs to be a king, that God always had a plan that there was a king, but it seems like in that passage that God didn't want him to have a king because he was king. But in Genesis chapter 49, before Exodus, he makes a prophecy over one of the sons of Jacob, Judah, and this is the prophecy of 49 verse 10 of Genesis. 
The scepter, what's the scepter? It's a symbol of power. Who has a scepter? The king does. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. You see that? Even back in Genesis, God is proclaiming that a king is going to come. The problem that we have in 1 Samuel is their heart is bad. The king's not the problem. Their heart is a problem. Right? So the king, that God knew, that's why, he makes this, that's why he makes this command in Deuteronomy 17, that the king was going to come. It was always in the plan. And so what are the qualifications of this king? Well, the first thing, one of the first things he says is that God, it needs to be a fellow Israelite. It needs to be a brother Israelite. Why? Because God is serious about his covenant. Now, for us, this idea of covenant can be a struggle for us to conceptualize in our mind. But there is one people in the entire world at this time which God came down and specifically said to them, you are mine and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to bind myself to you contractually and, I'm, and it's a covenant relationship and here are the, here's the seal and here's the sign of that. God bound himself and the sign of that, the sign of that promise we're circumcision. He's saying, listen, don't put someone over you that I haven't bound myself to, that I'm not in covenant with. has to be a fellow Israelite. God is serious about that. In fact, in just a minute, we're going to, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we're taking one of the signs of God's covenant to us. For them, it was Passover and circumcision. For us, it's Lord's Supper and baptism. It's the sign and the seal of God pledging himself to us. In the same way, in this passage, had to be a fellow Israelite. And then in verses 16 and 17, we see that God delegated some of his authority to a humble servant king. Did you pick up verse 20? And do not consider himself better than his brothers. So he's not supposed to be puffed up. He's just in, he just has a role. He has been given this, this position of authority not for himself. He has been given this position of authority not because he's better He's been giving this position of authority because God chose him and he has got a role to play to serve and not to think himself higher than anyone else. Look what else he couldn't do. Verse 16, he couldn't acquire horses. He was to trust God. He was to be a model of what faith in God looked like. Now back then, horses were the best weapon you could have in war. And kings would amass as many horses as they could possibly get in chariots because it was a sure way to defend that you would be able to defend your borders and extend your kingdom if you had a really powerful army. In fact, there are several verses in the Bible about this. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The king was not to be tempted or to acquire a huge army, but he was to trust in the God as warrior. How did the nation come about in the first place? It, it wasn't because they were strong. It wasn't because they had a, a great military. They didn't have military at all. God defeated the superpower of the world militarily, Egypt, with no military, with the Red Sea, with a, with a miracle, and the king was supposed to be a model of what faith and the warrior king looked like. And how he was supposed to exercise that faith was not acquiring tons of horses or military power. Okay? 
So he was to trust in the Lord. He was trusted that his strength and the strength of his nation wasn't going to come from his army, but it was going to come from God's hands. All right, what else do we see? He was not to acquire many wives. It was, it was, again, this was a tr- um, he was supposed to model trust in God's protection and also satisfaction with God's ways. First of all, God's protection. Now, back in, in these days, the way you made alliances with other nations was you married the king's daughters. That's how you made political alliances. So part of this is you don't need to rely on your political alliances with other, with other nations and with other kingdoms. You need to rely on my power. It's very similar in that way to the horses thing. Y'all seeing that? Where you don't have to rely on, on going to other, other places, to going to other nations. You can trust that I'm going to protect you. And also, there's, this is a satisfaction that is being commanded for God's ways. The king was supposed to be a model. The king was supposed to be a model of what it meant to trust God and to trust God's law. Now, you'll see polygamy uh, throughout, the, throughout the Scripture, but you'll never see it condoned by God. Not one time. In fact, you'll see the pattern that God set up early in Genesis of one man and one woman together. You'll never see that. But it was a popular practice, especially for kings back in those days to, to have a harem, to have, to have many wives. This was, this was, again, a way they would secure treaties, but it was also another way for them to proclaim to the world their greatness. One of the ways back then they measured greatness was by how many kids you could have. That was seen as a mark of, of prosperity, a huge mark of prosperity, that the gods were looking upon you with favor if you could have many kids. Okay? And so these kings would have multiple wives and lots of children to, so that they would look like to the outside world that they had tons of influences and blessing from the Lord. But this king was supposed to serve in a kingdom that wasn't about him. It wasn't about his rule. It wasn't about his reign. And he wasn't supposed to practice that. And in fact, it, it oftentimes, whenever kings did this, it worked out terrible for them because the king's sons would end up killing each other to try to get to the throne. If you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see that pattern. And if you look at the history of kings in general, you'll see that, particularly in England. Right? So not many wives, um, and he's not to acquire much gold and, and silver for himself. A king must model contentment and self-control. He's not to use his position of authority to make himself rich, to make himself powerful, to make himself influential. Basically, that's what covers the horses, the wives, and the gold and silver. This is not his kingdom. This is God's kingdom. And he is simply a servant in this kingdom. That's what God wanted him to do to do. Now, how did this work out in the life of Israel? Terrible. They couldn't even get through one king. David was the first king, and in many ways he was a model king, but he was far from perfect. He had many wives, and he killed a man. Solomon comes in after him. His son comes in after him, and is even worse. Basically, systematically goes through each one of these and shatters it. Uh, he has, uh, it says in 1 Kings chapter 11, he has 700 wives um, and, and concubines. 
and they led his heart astray, just like this verse said that he would, he would to do. It says uh, we have from, uh, from 1 Kings as well, we got what, what he, his wealth, that his nation saw untold prosperity because God blessed them. And in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, this is what we read about what Solomon brought in for himself every year. This was his self-paycheck. You ready for that? This? 666 talents of gold, not including the revenue from the merchants and traders and from the Arabian kings. Now, a talent is over 75 pounds. 666 talents of gold. Each talent is 75 pounds. The equivalent, some have estimated, of what that would be in American dollars is well over a billion dollars annually. Okay? That he received himself. Didn't do that. And then it, in 1 Kings as well, chapter 4, we, we read that he, he, got, he uh, gathered 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. What was the result? His kingdom didn't even last one generation. His son blew it up and they had a divided nation as a result. And then just a few generations after that, the pagan nations around him come in and crush him and destroy the temple. Did their authority that they were seeking for themselves bring them prosperity or happiness? When they were throwing off God's yoke, did that work out well for them? Never did. God was promising this king blessing, but he threw it, he threw it off. Verses 18 through 20. God's king is under the law and exists to reinforce the law of God. Isn't it interesting? Did y'all see this in, uh, in verse 18? When he, is, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. So not just this specific law, but basically the whole of the law, right? Which for them was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, right? He was to handwrite it. Isn't that fascinating? He wasn't just to get a copy from the scribes. He was to sit down and make his own copy with his own hand for himself and keep it with him every day of his night, every day, every day, and read it day and night. His job was to keep the law, period. His authority existed <clears throat> excuse me, for that purpose alone, to give, to give God's law to the people and to not turn from it from the right or to the or to the left to read it every day of his life and it's fascinating it says that he's to learn to revere god that's interesting to me learn to revere god it's not something that we come naturally equipped with we have to learn it he did be committed to that and you learn how to revere god as you study his word, and God changes you by the power of his word, okay? So that was what he was supposed to do, and, and it was untold prosperity was supposed to come to him as a result of this, of, of, this, of this kind of kingdom, untold prosperity. The summary of this would be to say this. This is the kind of king that you would want. This is the kind of king that it shouldn't be hard to serve. But Israel never saw it. But we can actually behold it in the Bible, which is the second point. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the humble servant king 
that God wanted and commanded in Deuteronomy 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't acquire gold or silver or power for himself. He had no possession other than his clothes. And and when he died, someone took that from him as well. Jesus lived by the word of God. He knew it and he taught it with more authority than anyone else. And his constant rebuttal to anyone who questioned him was, it is written. He knew it. Jesus is the king of kings. He was born in the line of David. He was a fellow Israelite under the covenant. He was chosen by God to be a king. In Matthew 21, when he proceeds into Jerusalem, people line the streets and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, the coming king. When he's on trial in John chapter 18, Pilate says to him, asks him this question, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? And Jesus then says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And then Pilate says, you're a king then. And he says, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now what kind of crown did Jesus get while he was here? Just a few hours later, he got a crown of thorns. And then they mockingly put a true statement above the cross that they killed him on. King of the Jews. That is Deuteronomy chapter 17 lived out into perfection. And then what happens? Now we're getting close to Easter. We're not not close, but that's where we're heading with this in mind. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he proclaimed himself in authority and he proved it by not even letting the grave stand over him. And when he ascended into heaven, he ascended for a very specific reason to take his rightful seat as a crucified human being on the throne of the universe forever. And Paul speaks about this in Ephesians. Because in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, resurrection, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, ascension, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also into one to come, and God placed all things under his feet. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The kind of king we were, that we were expecting, that we wanted, that we needed, that God called for. He came and he proved it. And now he sits on the throne of the universe. And we as his people are awaiting his return when his kingdom will be obvious to everyone. Revelation 17 says they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Revelation 19, verse 16. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This picture of a king that we never saw in anyone else other than Jesus Christ. That's how he lived, and then he proved it when he took his seat on the throne, and he'll prove it even still when he comes back. And then finally, so how do we live under King Jesus? What is that supposed to look like? Well, the first thing is what I, I hope was happening in your heart as I was describing Jesus and his kingship. I hope that God moves in you in such a way that you begin to revere and adore and love this king. Isn't it interesting that the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17 had to learn to revere that Hebrew word as fear, honor, adore, see him as holy and righteous and awesome and powerful. I hope that you are learning to revere the king of glory even now. And one of the things that that means to revere the king of glory is whatever he says in his word, you are bound to do. The qualifications of following King Jesus, he spells out for us very clearly, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, submit all of yourselves, all of your heart, all of your thoughts, even to the point of death, for as long as you have life. Adore the king and love his word. Isn't it interesting that the king had to make a handwritten copy of the law and read it every single day and every single night and behold it, memorize it? It's the same thing that God calls us to do is to love the word of the king. You know, one of the cool things to do at the beginning of every year is to get a fresh start and maybe read through the whole Bible or maybe take it slow, whatever it is you're calling to do. I'm, I'm taking the first few months of the year and I'm going to read through the whole Bible. It should take about anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour a day. It's a big goal, but I challenge you to do the same thing. Take big chunks. Get the whole thing done if you've never done it before. Love the word of God. Quit trying to build your own kingdom and start building God's. Whenever we build our own kingdom, it doesn't go well. And God instructs us to build His kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, He says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all the other things you're asking for, all these things will be given to you as well, if your priorities are right seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. If you make disciples, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Summary. I'm the king, therefore, go make disciples. Because He's the king. And that's what the king asks us to do. And to obey our king in everything that we do. You know, the scripture lesson that we read this morning, how does the king call us to interact with other people that we love? How does the king call us to interact with our enemies? What we do, how we serve, will bring him glory and honor. And also, on the end of the day, in the end of the end of the world, or the end of our lives, one day we'll stand before this king. And be and based on how we've served him, he'll hand us a crown, and the scriptures say that in light of his glory, 
will throw it at his feet. The one who deserved it anyway. You have a king. His name is Jesus. And you need this king. Maybe you've never met him. Maybe today's the day for that. Or maybe you do know him, but you've been bucking against his authority for a while. And today is the day to come back in fresh allegiance to say there is no other one that I want to serve other than King Jesus. In Bastille Day, they overthrew the government because they had a bad king. And I would say that there's probably a government that you need to overthrow, and it's probably yourself. You may think or want to be the king of your own life. It's not going to work out. Overthrow that kingdom so you can serve the kingdom of God, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Father in heaven, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, God, we would ask uh, that you would help us as we serve you, as, as, we, uh, as we do this, and help us, God, to serve you in everything we do as King of kings and as Lord of lords. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.